Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Horrible, a weekly podcast where OG millennials have honest and candid conversations about dating, sex, yes, butt stuff, relationships, entanglements, and everything in between. Starring your host, Scarlett Prynne. Pull those anal beads out slowly. This is not a lawnmower. You don't want to hit a snag. <laughs> and featuring guests, Vixen Moore. No, the more hyper-masculine and alpha a guy is, the more he's going to want to be fucked in the ass. <laughs> so I'm here with my next victim. I mean, uh, candidate? <laughs> vixen for our meet vixen episode i'm ready you're a brave woman signing up for this obviously i don't <laughs> shy away from confrontation no, or anything neither one of us do <laughs> which i think scares away the masses probably probably <laughs> we love it we don't want to chase you away yes come back to our discord we didn't mean it <laughs> okay maybe we did but it was it it's was for your fun. benefit <laughs> We'll be stronger on the other side. <laughs> so our resident dominatrix, you're still doing that, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's my night job. So I... Your side hustle. Mm-hmm. My side hustle now for over 10 years. So yeah, <laughs> I still do it. So let's get to know all of Vixen. Where were you born? I was born in Austin. Oh, okay. So not too far from here. We're in Dallas right now. So about three and a half hours from where we are now. Yep. And then I actually, I've just been moving up by 35. So my mom moved us from there when I was about five months old. So I then grew up outside of Waco okay. until I graduated high school and ended up in Dallas. So just slowly working my way north. Now, I can't remember. Did that Branch Davidian thing happen when you were there? Yes. I was like six years old when that happened. Okay. So do you remember mm-hmm. that? You were probably yeah. too young or do no, you? Oh, I remember okay. it. I remember it specifically because my mom sewed. And so we would see the women and children at the fabric stores. And the local residents were really upset when it happened because there was a known fact that David Koresh came to town like every Thursday. They could have picked him up without involving anyone else. Wow. And then... I had no idea. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. It was very, very bad for what they did. There was so many things that they did wrong. They literally had to rewrite the book. There was actually books on hostage negotiation already, and they did the exact opposite of everything that should have happened for that whole situation. So did your family ever meet him or know of him? We knew of him. It was actually like I remember watching it on TV because it was really close to my grandma's house. And we were worried about her house catching on fire. Wow. Like it was that close. And yeah, everybody knew they were there, but CPS had been out multiple times to look for any signs of child endangerment and not found any evidence. And so that's why the ATF came in saying that they had automatic weapons that weren't allowed. But afterwards, they found that every single weapon they had, because they were licensed gun dealers, were legal. So the whole reason for being there was fabricated. Wow. So... As a community and a family, what was the aftermath like? I mean, for us, it was just being pissed off at the government. We weren't religious and we didn't necessarily agree with everything that was going on there. 
But we also still go with the, yeah, but that's freedom in America. We're supposed to be able to practice weird religions. And so as long as you aren't actually endangering children, it's allowed and also leave our guns alone. So, yeah, they could have gone about that in a completely different way for the locals and like in my family, it was just anger at the government because we saw all the things that they could have done differently. Mm. How much of that were you processing at six years old? I was pretty young. But like I said, I remember watching it on TV and remembering how upset my parents were and remembering that I like knew those people from the fabric store. Did you feel fear over that situation or what not was fear the overlying I, emotion there? Not fear that I was in danger, but fear for them because it was a siege that lasted, I want to say like 28 days. That might not be right, but it went on for weeks. And so knowing how many children were inside and we're like, okay, well, they're just going to wait it out because surely the government won't attack them. And then they had cut the electricity, so they had candles burning, and then they launched in flammable tear gas. And so that's why everything went up in flames with, I want to say, like 30 kids in it. So could you see the smoke, I'm assuming, for miles? uh, I'm probably. I don't remember seeing it from my house. But like I said, we were worried about my grandma's house catching on fire. She was that close to it. And yeah, there were definite worries for that local safety. But it's not in Waco. It is further outside of Waco. And I did grow up in one of those outside communities, but we were on at least 20 miles away. Gotcha. Okay. And is that where you largely grew up was in that area? Mm -hmm. I was born in Austin. And we moved to Waco when I was about five months old because my mom left my dad. So you didn't grow up with your dad then, I assume? No, I did not. Now, my mom did remarry when I was three years old. So I have almost no memory of life before him. Gotcha. But my parents met in Austin in the 80s, kind of the cocaine generation there. And my dad had enough like oil money that he had never really had to work. And gave my mom the whirlwind romance kind of pretty woman sweeper off her feet thing. And then a few years into the relationship became abusive and developed schizophrenia. So she left him when my sister was born. My sister's two years older than me. And then they ran into each other at a Halloween party. And he was like, well, I'll give you another baby. They didn't expect to get it that night. Wow. Surprise. So... As she had the idea that, okay, it's really hard being a single mom and now he's better and it'll all be good. And then when I was born, of course, nothing was better. And she said her breaking point was that he would at least come up with an excuse when he was beating her. And the last time he didn't even bother coming up with an excuse. And so that was her like, nope, I'm out. Like, wow, this isn't about me. This is about him. So she ran with kids that were two and a half and half a year old. And went to live on the floor of her sister's one-bedroom house instead of living with the guy who could provide all the money and drugs and that kind of thing. Because she had to go live the, like, more (laughs) straight-laced vanilla life to be mom, and dad didn't want to do that. So she remarried to my stepdad, who was 35 years old, living at home with his mom, never smoked, never drank, complete opposite, looking for that security kind of thing. I do remember life before my mom married my stepdad. I remember like the guy she dated before and 
some of them we kept in contact with over the years. And so I have distinct memories of all the kind of fun things and then him moving in and being much more quiet because he had grown up in the very silent children should not be seen or heard, like go stay in your room kind of thing. But I think he tried for like the first two years and I was like, eh, never mind. <laughs> I don't really want to be dad. I'm just going to be this person who lives in the same house and we just stay out of each other's way. So did he actively say, I'm not going to be a dad figure here? Or uh, what was it that gave you that impression that he's no longer interested in being dad? Kind of more avoiding interacting with my sister and I. My sister is definitely more of the hellraiser than I was. So I think that was part of it. So by proxy, I was the favorite child, but that was a really low bar. So Mm. I think I can count like on my hands the number of times we rode in the same vehicle together. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was super introverted, like never goes out. So my mom would take my sister and I out to wherever we're going to go. But if we were going to museums or out to eat or things like that, he just didn't go along for that. He wanted to stay home. So was any of that taken personally by you? Was it hurtful? Did you internalize any of that? No. Like I said, even when he like offered to come to things, it's like, I realize how awful that will be for you. So I'm not going to put you through that for something that, you know, doesn't really have anything to do with you. I completely understood that he walked in and felt like he got it over his head Mm -hmm. and still stuck it out for us and just had been raised in such a little non-emotional family already. And he was still very attached to his family. Like he every Thursday would go to his mom's house for dinner. And so he wanted to provide the security of being stable. (laughs) But he would interact with me as much as I wanted to. Like there were times even now, like if I go down, he'll still like eat in the same room and interact with me and the people I bring over. But if my sister comes in, he will leave the room and go hide away. Yikes. Yeah, but it reflects on my sister, not on me or on him. Was there fighting between them? Or oh, absolutely. Just, my oh. sister's insane. We know now it's borderline personality disorder. Mm. But at the time, like we kept being told like bipolar, but it just didn't quite seem to sit right. And yeah, so with borderline personality, she like thrives on drama. Everything's big emotions but either absolutely loves you or you're the worst person on the face of the earth. There is no in-between for her. And how what was that like growing up with her? Awful. <laughs> I got out as soon as I could. I had to do years of therapy to learn how to like deal with her and it's more of survive with her. But I had a wonderful mom and a very boring stepdad. So like kind of helped balance that out. So like looking at how different would my life have been if I hadn't had that to deal with, I'd probably develop my interest in neuroscience and psychology because of her and because of my real dad's symptoms from schizophrenia and all the people on his side of the family that had mental issues. I started learning about them to watch out for my own symptoms. And we were told a lot of bipolar. And it wasn't until I got to college that I went, wait dad wasn't bipolar. It was schizophrenia. (laughs) How much was he involved in your growing up years? Very, very little. I had a couple phone calls, a couple letters. He was in prison nearly my whole childhood, which was actually better because if he was in prison, we could go see his side of the family and stuff. But if he was out, we had to have unlisted phone numbers. 
like people talk about abuse. I mean, he put my mom in the hospital multiple times. Yikes. And it was very much a we had to hide. And so then knowing that there was this man out there who had money and still wasn't paying child support, he didn't even have to work for it. And he'd be in prison with it just piling up at a bank account and still wouldn't pay child support. Like that doesn't give me any kind of sign that I want that to be in my life. So we would have to like go to the store to call him from a payphone if we wanted to like ask for him about money for braces or something like that. So there were a couple times in my life that he sent money, I think like three. And then he died when I was 14. Yeah, freshman in high school. Like my mom woke me up that morning and told me they'd found him dead. And I was like, okay, well, I don't actually have to be up for another 15 minutes. Can I go back to sleep? And she's like, you're going to go to school today? I went, I have a choice. It's like, yeah, your dad died. And I went, yeah, I got to break up with my boyfriend today. I'm going to go ahead and go. (laughs) Like, that's how little he had on my life. Mm. He didn't want me. Then why should I stress myself out about wanting him? Like, nope, I'm good. Did life get less stressful after that? Yeah, it was definitely better. (laughs) And it was odd. Like when I went to his funeral, like people would look at me and start crying. And I'm like, what? Because I'd only ever seen like two photos of them. But then to find out like, oh, that's my hair. That's my eyes. That's my skin. But I had my mom. So you didn't really even know what he looked like. Very Very little. Just like mom's descriptions. And I had an older brother who was same dad that was eight years older than me. And we met when I was 16. So a couple years later when he got out of prison and I was actually at the funeral that I saw my first photos of my brother. And so when he got out and I was like 16, we got each other's phone numbers and set up a meetup and I drove down to Austin and we each brought like a friend with us to make it less awkward. And we like see each other and our friends are both just dying laughing because we have the same hair, same eyes. We had matching birthmarks where my sister, who's my full-blooded sister, was one grade ahead of me in school at a tiny school. People thought with coincidence that we had the same last name because we were so different. Wow. So I'm putting myself in, you know, obviously as an outsider hearing this story, just putting myself in young Vixen's shoes, Mm -hmm. thinking about having a father that didn't want to be involved even financially, (laughs) having this fear of even him knowing where I am, having a stepdad that largely avoided me, a sister who sometimes hated my guts. (laughs) Which actually, so she has OCD and obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was always one of her obsessions. So she was super protective over me. And then I was the free spirit who didn't want that protection. So most of my life, she worshipped the ground I walked on to the point that I wanted her to stay away Away from from me. Yeah. It was kind of the opposite problem there. Okay. Did you ever feel a sense of loneliness or despair? Or did you battle any depression or anxiety in the midst of all of this? I developed depression kind of like in high school. So I went to therapy for years of learning how to deal with her, like what sort of techniques to keep us from coming to physical blows with each other, because that was very much of a factor there. But I was a good student. I always had friends. I had a wonderful mom. So do you think there was any disassociation going on? Mm, No, I was very aware of everything. Like I said, I did a lot of research and one of 
my career path was looking at like FBI criminologists, those kinds of things. And I absolutely love psychology, but I wanted a bit harder science. So that was where neuroscience came in. And so honestly, my mom was probably Asperger's. I know that's not the proper term anymore. So super high functioning autism. And so she really pushed me to be more social because she saw where she missed out on life and that she didn't have enough friends. So by the time I was 11, I became a cheerleader and really got involved in like sports and all the school activities and stuff to try to encourage me to be more well-rounded. And I knew that I didn't have a college fund. So if I was going to go to college, it was going to be strictly on scholarships. So my grades were very important to me. And I had so much stuff that just I tried to stay out of the house as much as possible and paid off for me, I guess you could say. (laughs) When did you know that you wanted to go into the scientific arena? At six, I was telling people I was going to be a brain surgeon. Wow. And people were like, oh, don't worry, she'll get over that. My mom's like, why should she get over that? And then I was like, oh, I don't like blood. And I would try to convince people, there's not much blood on the brain. I'm like, yeah, but if your brain is normal, you're not having brain surgery. So <laughs> that was part of the, you know, obviously I got over the blood factor, but I always had dreams of bigger things. So the astronaut, veterinarian, criminal profiler, general, like mad scientist, fighter pilot, <laughs> Actually, so it was going to be fighter pilot and then go on to be astronaut. (laughs) But yeah, there were always grand ambitions. And so I like graduated valedictorian in my class and I joined Menza when I was 14. I was encouraged to be smart from a very young age. And I knew that that was going to be my ticket out. And so when you're graduating high school, did you already envision what your path forward was going to be? Did you know what you wanted to do? Kind of. I then moved to New Orleans to go to Tulane and Hurricane Katrina hit the week I got there. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, talk about timing. Yeah. Yeah. Mom still blames that one on me. <laughs> it was like I had three quarters of the way paid for scholarship, but that last like 10000 a year was going to be hard on us. And so my mom's like, if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. And then Katrina hit and she's like, guess it wasn't meant to happen. <laughs> but... So you ended up not going there then? I did not. We evacuated to Jackson, Mississippi, which when I looked at all the schools, like my mom told me I could move anywhere on the earth that I wanted except for Jackson, Mississippi. So then when we got there and then they told us we were evacuating to Jackson State University. Oh, where is that? (laughs) Jackson, Mississippi. And I like hit the ground. I was laughing so hard. And it was that my mom didn't want me to go there due to the racism. And she had been there once when saw somebody get beat up for just being the wrong color when they walked into a bar. And she was like, that's just a terrible place. Do not go there. So that's where they evacuated us to. And after being stuck there for about four days, they got buses to bring us to either Atlanta or Dallas. And so my family could just pick me up straight from Dallas. And my backup school was here in Dallas. And so they were kind enough to reinstate my scholarships, which I had two full rides to the school here. Wow. So I came here and ended up liking it enough to stay. So I only went back to Tulane to pick up my stuff and then came here. And- wow. <laughs> what a crazy story. <laughs> oh, the, the <laughs> chaos. I can imagine. Me. But I was really good at high school. Like I said, valedictorian, but also head cheerleader, National Honor Society, varsity tennis. Like I did all the sports until I got mono, like sophomore year. Was your college career similar? Yes, kind of. 
I was on academic scholarships. I had at that point, I decided that I was going to go to vet school and was told that I needed just a hard science degree and then maybe a couple extra classes. And then I was working at vets offices starting when I was like 15. But I knew that getting into vet school is actually harder to get into than medical school because there's just so Interesting. few. Like how many vet schools do you know? I don't. <laughs> A&M is our only school in Texas. Wow. And so I don't know if this has changed, but at the time there were only 28 schools in the whole U.S. Wow. So I didn't know that. I put in safety plans in case I didn't get into vet school. So that was where I neuroscience was my choice with the psych minor. And then halfway through found out they hadn't put me quite on the right like path for my classes. I was going to have to add on a fifth year. Scholarships weren't going to cover it. And because of Hurricane Katrina, I came in three weeks late to my first semester. And then my sophomore year, I had like gallbladder surgery. So I had a semester with a lower GPA and I was like, man, my GPA is not going to be good enough to get into vet school. Why am I going to take all this extra like work to go that route? I'll just stick with neuroscience. I like that. So I stayed that route instead of going vet. In college, I started to do cheerleading and it was just a totally different style of cheerleading. So I ended up joining the student spirit organizations because it's kind of like the pep squad. It was called Crush. And all the students who sit in the stands wearing like the same color shirts and yellow along with the cheerleaders and face paint and that kind of thing. Because my freshman year, I won an award for most spirited student. Nice. <laughs> out of like 15,000 students on campus. Wow. So that was cool. Then I became activities director for them and then president of the student spirit organization. And as I finished out school there. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't too much of a difference. I had to do a lot more studying than I had previously. Like my first semester, I went from having like a 104.6 average in high school to a 2.6 GPA out of a 4.0. And I was like, oh my God, I'm awful. And then like the next semester, I was like, oh, okay, no, apparently don't show up one week of class and then have your first round of tests. <laughs> that makes it a little harder. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> especially in that field. <laughs> yeah. So I did have like my last two years were like Dean's List the whole time. So balanced out. <laughs> and now you have like bukus of degrees. <laughs> How many degrees do you have again? Three. Okay. Graduate degrees, right? Mm -hmm. Multiples. Yeah. Two master's degrees. So, and you're only 35? Yeah. Are you getting any more? Or are you done? <laughs> I don't know. It actually came up at work. They mentioned PhDs and it was like, oh, well, maybe. I was like, if y'all will pay me. And they're like, well, the whole point is you like PhD, the school pays you. I was like, yeah, but that's if I work for the school, I'd have to quit my job here. Mm. And if y'all want me to keep working for you at the same time, then you have to pay my tuition. So I actually did talk with them back in July, August. I was supposed to go to law school. <laughs> um, I was going to go for patent law. And oh, nice. I, actually, I took the LSAT. I got accepted into law school, but then they didn't give me as much in the way of scholarships as I wanted. And another school was like, well, we'll give you more and you wouldn't have to move out of DFW, but you have to wait a year. And so I actually resigned from my position that I was working at the college and then was like, you know, my whole goal was to go industry. Like, maybe I should check that out first. But while trying to decide, do I want to go to law school for three years and take out all the student loans? I went back to my previous school and asked, okay, to finish my PhD, what would it take? And like, you'd have to start a whole new project. Like, even though you're out of time for like your classes have kind of expired since you've been teaching, like you're still up to date. So you're looking at three years. So I was like three years for law school, three years for PhD. Like eventually I'll just have like business cards that just roll out like scrolls. So. <laughs> 
Well, it seems like it hasn't set you back not having your PhD because you've already been a professor at a college. You've mm-hmm. already done quite a bit years. in the scientific field. And then, of course, your side hustle is a dominatrix. <laughs> so it's definitely not setting you back, I would say. No, it was just one of those, like, my goal had been to have doctor in front of my name by 25. And um. then I took a year and a half off between undergrad and grad school. And then was like, okay, I'm just going to do a master's. And then as I was graduating that, they're like, oh, we'll join the PhD program and you won't have to take that many classes. And I'm like, okay. So I did that. And then I had my son and I had ADHD for the first time and was like really struggling. I was like, I'm burned out. Like I'm done. And so they went, well, if you finish one more class, you get your second master's. And I was like, okay. But I could tell they were grooming me to be a professor that I didn't want to do. And so like, I'm good at teaching, But I didn't want to do like the 300 people lecture halls and begging for grants and all of that stuff. So I left grad school, got my second master's degree, and then I couldn't find a job because I was overeducated and underexperienced. And so during that year, I was supporting myself just off dominatrix work. And while I enjoyed it, it's not a great resume pattern. (laughs) So I did accept a job at a college working in the labs. And so I could have classes with no more than 24 students. And like it never had to beg for grants or anything like that. And I was like, okay, this is fine. So that's I ended up staying there for a lot longer than I anticipated. But I did know that that was not my ultimate goal. It was mm. like I needed to put in three to five years somewhere. So in the meantime, then I picked up a certification in forensics and then still going back to that. Oh, yeah. Remember how I wanted to do, do like FBI work? Like, hey, now my DNA work can be used for something else. Then COVID hit. And so I ended up sitting around for another two years for that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life does not always take you where you think it's going to go. <laughs> no. So we've touched on some in previous episodes with you, your journey through your sex life, how you started out at a very young age, being very interested in that Mm -hmm. and having a mom. You've talked about having a mom that was very open with you, sexually speaking. When did you start becoming aware of sex and what that was? What was your first exposure to it? I came home at five years old and asked mom why a big man's penis was so much bigger than a little boy's. As a mother must have been went, very... Oh, where did you see a big man's penis? Because she knew I had a cousin that was within a year of me and we still took baths together. And she's like, but where did you see a big man's penis? Grandma's magazines. <laughs> so grandma had hardcore hustler magazines and playboys and stuff under the bed and um, with her. So this runs in the family. <laughs> yes, actually, my mom made a comment about that. You know, up until you, your grandma died, like even at the nursing home, we were having issues with her. I'm like, oh, great. Cool. Good to know. Actually, I think it was her 75th birthday. I bought her like nipple tassels. Oh, how and, funny. <laughs> so, she went, oh, OK. So nobody touched you kind of thing. And, but I was like, that seems disproportionately large. Uh, why is it so much bigger than a little boy's? So then she took me to the library and we checked out books. And she's like, well, since your sister hasn't questioned anything, let's go ahead and give her the full explanation, too. And so I knew about things, I guess, at five. I don't remember not orgasming. So even at that age, mm-hmm. you were? Yes. Like my sister and I called it rolling. Like we kind of like roll our baby blankets up and like grind on them. (laughs) That is really interesting. And yeah. I mean, that's not all that common, right? No, it's absolutely as common. It's just a lot of people like don't really remember it or they get shamed for it. So they stop doing it. But little kids touching themselves, 100% a thing. 
And that's where you hear like Lolita talking about the shame of even in the shower, you're not supposed to touch yourself. And I didn't get that information. I wasn't shamed for it. I don't even know if like maybe I was already knowing I should be discreet because I don't ever remember being told I needed to be discreet. Mm. So yeah, it was like my sister and I shared a room, but we didn't really even think about it being a sexual thing. It was just this feels good and it helps us fall asleep. So yeah, that's what we did. So did you actually have like the pulsating responses mm-hmm. that are part of having an orgasm even mm-hmm. at a young age? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Girls, well, actually, even boys will have orgasms before they can ejaculate. But yeah, you can orgasm from birth. Which definitely was not my experience because I had a hard time getting that first one and I was well into my 20s. So um, no, no. <laughs> that was definitely not my experience, Vixen. <laughs> so did you never like touch yourself like in the bathtub or anything? Like you just As never really... As a teenager, really ex- I would masturbate, but I didn't know how to have an orgasm. So what changed in your 20s that like, it was it just determination I, that you're like, I'm yes, going to exactly. figure this out. Like, and I ordered a VHS video, a how-to video that came oh. with a vibrator <laughs> to explain how to have an orgasm. And even then it took me a while. But yes, basically was it. it was like, I'm going to figure this out. No. But in my teenage years, I didn't even know if I was having it or not. I was like, maybe I'm having orgasms and I just don't know it because I didn't know what one felt like. Once your mom had this conversation with you, then from there, were you making the connection then that the rolling was a sexual thing or? I don't know for sure. Like when that became obvious, I do know like my mom did give us way more information. She took us to special classes that were put on by Planned Parenthood to teach us about our bodies. Like she didn't trust the public school system to tell us anything. So I remember like having conversations with my sister about like the word vulva and things like that, that there's people, grown people that don't know that. So yeah, it was just treated as a part of life and not something to be shamed by. Yeah, it was just common. But as a teenager and a child, did you feel self-conscious about your body? Um, Not really self-conscious. Not like I felt anything was wrong with my body. I just knew I wasn't supposed to go show it off to other people. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't a guilty thing. It was a, your body is too good. You need to keep it hidden. Not even that anybody really told us that. We were taught, okay, you change in your room, you change in the bathroom, and everything was just separated. It wasn't like we were not shamed for it. It was just a have your privacy. Yeah, even though I had all the sexual urges in the world and I was a child of the internet and had my AOL chat rooms and like cybering (laughs) for sexting type stuff, I still didn't have physical contact with people very much Mm. and didn't get my first kiss until I was 14. But by then was like writing erotica. (laughs) So... Yeah, let's talk about that because you have mentioned how you got really into erotica, reading it, writing it. So when did that start and how did that evolve? I guess I was, I think, 12. I think my mom put me on like a parental lock and I convinced her that my cheerleading websites were being blocked. So I started getting more access where my older sister was still on child lock. (laughs) Oh, how funny. um, (laughs) But because I was doing things safely. It never got me into trouble. And yeah, so literotica.com. 
And yeah, I could try things out through the chat rooms and those kinds of things. Probably other kids that were either really young or, and based on how terrible our writing was, I'm pretty sure we were all little kids. (laughs) (laughs) And you had mentioned that as a teenager, you had gotten treated for sex addiction. mm -hmm. What age was that? And how did all that develop? So I got my first kiss at 14. Then kind of the next weekend, I was talking with one of my friends and we were like, we're tired of being virgins. And he was a 16-year-old guy. So his friend drove him over and we lost our virginity together. But he had just gotten his tongue pierced. So it was like swollen and couldn't kiss or anything. So there was like almost no foreplay. And we just kind of like stuck it in. We're like, yeah, this sucks. And I was like... (laughs) bled a lot and was like yeah, yeah. yeah and he's like uh yeah there's too much blood like i can't stay hard like this is not okay and we're like all right yeah let's not do this anymore so it didn't hurt but i did bleed a lot and i told my therapist that about it and then i guess about six months later i was complaining with one of my older guy friends about how terrible sex was he was like wait wait wait, wait. no 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 we can fix this let me show you how it should feel. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's different. Okay, cool. So I highly recommend be with the slut and they will show you the ways much better. <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> the key, yes, is <laughs> find yourself a good slut. So like, he was 17, though. So when I told my therapist about him, then she was like, okay, that's three-year age gap. I have to tell your mom or you do. And I was like, I'll tell her. So I told my mom, she's like, you're really mature for your age. And, you know, he's a great guy. So it'll be okay. I guess that was like the end of my freshman year. So by that summer, I was having like threesomes with him, like brought in one of my friends. And he was one who like taught me how to give head and like was actually like more of a teacher of demonstrating. Here's how it should feel. Here's if it feels like this. Here's what's going wrong. And I was already had done a lot of research myself online So making that connection was a lot easier when you had somebody who was already experienced. You think that having that mentor, if you will, helps Mm -hmm. in regards to being able to orgasm so much easier and more frequently during sexual experiences? Um, I was already hyper-orgasmic. So I started getting treatment for it when I was 16. And it was because I was dating this guy who was 18. And he actually broke up with me because I was so sexual. And at that point, if I didn't have at least 10 orgasms a day, I would go into withdrawal. Wow. And like full withdrawal symptoms, shaking, nausea, like all of it. And the doctor's like, it's a chemical addiction, just like if you had a drug addiction. So they offered to keep trying to change my birth control and my antidepressants to find one that would give stronger side effects and to kill my sex drive. And my mom's like, nope, I don't want to mess up her brain. So find a better boyfriend. And I did. A better boyfriend being someone that actually wanted to have sex. (laughs) Yeah. And she said, I'm not worried about the 16-year-old girl that wants to have sex. I'm worried about the 18-year-old boy that doesn't. Mm. Yeah. At that point... I knew I had to take things into my own hands, and literally. <laughs> and they were like, no, this is just a physical addiction. Like you're doing things safely. You're using masturbation. So it's not an attention thing, like is a physical need. So we have to treat this as a chemical dependency. I had to work very hard to keep my reputation separate and hidden so that it wouldn't like interfere with me. <laughs> 
So I took a lot of precautions to make sure everything was in place. So at some point you started stripping. Somewhere along the lines, making the transition into from stripper to dominatrix work. So when did that start? Um, Let's see, that would have been 2012-ish. I was in grad school and had actually already met my to-be husband. So we were going to the fetish store and looking at all the stuff and going, okay, writing down like item descriptions and everything. So then when they gave us the check, and we were like, well, well, now we need to replace everything. And they're like, well, you seem well-versed in all this stuff. So they offered <laughs> me the job. At the sex store? Yeah, it's specifically the fetish store. So I was already working there. Even when I was stripping, they were asking me for that kind of stuff. And my aunt had made a comment, like, you can make money off of this. And I was like, oh, I don't know how to do that. But I was like, you know, I could do this. So that was what got me to transition. So getting started as a dominatrix, was that a nerve wracking thing? Were you nervous about it or was it, did it feel like home right away? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be because I was already used to dealing with clients because of the strip club and you're selling a fantasy. And I found that most of the guys at the strip club just want somebody to talk to. And the nights I made the most money, I didn't even take my clothes off. And if you could remember them from one visit to the next, like, oh, you were their favorite person ever. As a dominatrix, they're just looking for someone to talk to? Yes, I think that is a big aspect of it. If they either can't go to their own spouse about it or if they don't have a spouse, they need someone that they can share those things with. And so it has nothing to do with sex. And now there are some that are fetishes that I do really enjoy that, yeah, they can come to me and talk about all of those fantasies, even if they don't want to actually act them out. Just talking about them gives them that release. So you mentioned you're in the lifestyle. I know you're polyamorous. Mm -hmm. You're pansexual. Mm -hmm. You're in the BDSM lifestyle. As a switch. And then you're also in the swinging lifestyle, right? Uh Uh-huh. So you're just involved in all of it. You're yeah, like, yes, please. <laughs> yes. Actually, variety is my fetish. And so I have two boyfriends and a girlfriend. <laughs> and you're a mom. And a mom. Mm-hmm. So kind of lead us through, I guess, the evolution of your kind of your relationship life and how you ended up becoming a mom and well, divorce I, and all of that. I had my little online boyfriends from the chat rooms and had multiple of them and then finally was like, I feel guilty. I'm cheating on them. So I stuck them all in a chat room together to introduce them to each other, (laughs) which apparently is not what most 14-year-old girls do. (laughs) Overly honest from the beginning. Oops. (laughs) But then I was like, oh, okay, one boyfriend and tried to do that. And about every three months, I'm like, I'm bored. I want this other person. So therefore, something must be wrong in this relationship. So So you were trying to be monogamous. I tried to be monogamous. So the guy that I was with for the three years was nice because he was bipolar. And so we could have a great relationship for like three months. And then when he dipped into his depressive phases, he would isolate. And so we'd have three great months together. One month, I'd get to go run around, do whatever I wanted. And then back to three months, it worked out very nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Once we were living together, though, that became a problem because he can no longer self-isolate. That was kind of the breaking point for us. It wasn't until I was in college, though, that I really looked at poly as an option. And I've never been a jealous person. So I get the opposite. I have compersion. So making my partners happy and seeing my partners happy is what brings me happiness. Is marriage ever in your future or are you done with that? No, it totally is. 
because of the two bed boyfriends, one girlfriend situation, they're figuring out how we're going to have interlocking rings to make that happen. And I are very seriously looking at marriage options. Kitten doesn't talk very much. Now, are Kitten and Knight together or are you just with them separately? I am with them separately. He will have sex with her if I am there. But she has a nesting partner, somebody that she lives with. They've been together for four years. So they are also, you know, getting married to each other. She would ideally like to have a communal house with everyone. But I want a separate living situation. My other partner is not on the Discord. He is much more introverted. So it's just a fluke thing. (laughs) So when you were talking about interlocking rings, are you talking about multiple marriages, both with kitten and night? It would have to legally be a hand fasting ceremony with her and legally be married to night because they don't allow for three-way marriages yet. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. But they wouldn't be together or would they? The two of them? They would not. In the same way that... I have sex with her boyfriend when she is there and she has sex with my boyfriend. Technically, she has not had sex with the other boyfriend. We've been in group encounters, but just did not go to penetration. So you would basically be not legally, obviously, but basically be married to two separate people and have two separate marriages. Possibly up to three. (laughs) Okay. Possibly up to three. So um, marriage is very, very much on the table for you. You know, there's friends with benefits, there's open marriages, polyamory. Within poly, there's, you know, parallel relationships where people never meet. Then the opposite end of the spectrum is kitchen table poly, where everyone can sit around the kitchen table for breakfast. There's an in-between called garden party poly, which is more that they're not your best friends, but you can both go to the party together. And so... My third partner is more like that, that he doesn't usually see them unless it's a special event. At the same time, Kitten and Knight do see each other more like we've got a date tomorrow. We're going out to dinner and then have a hotel room with just the three of us. That's going to be our first time to just be the three of us, though. Every other time, it's always been more people involved. But with them, like she has the key to my third partner's apartment to help with cat sitting when he is out of town and things like that. And she has what she calls Meta Mondays. So Meta is your partner's partner. So on Monday, she reaches out to all of her Metas to connect and be like, how are things going and chat with them. And they flirt and exchange sexy pictures and stuff. But actually, my guys don't have sex with anybody unless I'm involved. And that's not like a rule. It just happens that that's currently where they're at. And They may change that in the future, but nobody's on their radar. Whereas Kitten then also dates another couple that's married. She dates both of them separately and together. We both have a few other kind of fuck buddies. So that's actually how you and I met was at a polyamory Dallas poly trivia night. Mm -hmm. And I happened to sit next to you. (laughs) <laughs> and we got to talking. Yeah, we got to talking about the podcast, and then you, you gave were me your business me, card. Absolutely, of course <laughs> I did. 
But yeah, I remember sitting next to you and just fascinated whenever you started telling me about your life and like (laughs) being a professor and, you know, your science experience and all of this. And I was like, wow, this is a fascinating person. It was funny. The guy across the table was like, oh, you'll get three or four episodes out of her. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So what was it that drew you to wanting to be a part of the podcast? Actually, when I was considering the law school stuff, I picked up like the wholesome corruption branding and was looking at doing sex education type videos or something and being like, and sex education is such an important part, but I hate that my day job doesn't involve it and can't necessarily know about this side of me. And I hate that I don't have shame about it, but if somebody finds out about it that judges me for it and it costs me my career, It's so unfair. It absolutely pisses me off. But I was looking at, is there a career option that I could have that I could do that side of things? So I started reaching out to sex therapists. Turns out you can be a sexologist without any kind of special certification or anything. I found a lot of interesting connections. So I give advice and stuff through Reddit and through some different forums. I technically have the branding for OnlyFans and all those things, but I didn't pull that trigger because I happened to get offered my dream job like that same month. And so I was like, <laughs> well, shit, uh, what do I do? So then when I went to one of the women's networking events and I met the OBGYN who leads the Rosie app, Because I was applying to companies being like, okay, well, this is based on women's sexual health, but they're based out of California and there's male owners and kind of shitty. And oh, wait, here's one led by women (gasps) and they're based out of Dallas. Oh my God, like that'd be amazing. And then like I sent messages and never heard anything back. So then when I met her in person, she was like, oh my God, no, like I get so inundated, like send me your information right now. Here's my personal email address. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) It was really funny because she was like, where did you speak about sexual shame? Like, that's incredible. Like, I need to talk to you. To see her be so excited was a great feeling. And when I told her about our podcast and she's like, I just got told about you last week. So I need to like reach out now and be like, hey. Yeah, we need to get her on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you for having me. Letting our listeners have a little bit of insight into who you are. And now we get to do yours, right? I hope so. That would be great. (laughs) I want to see how many other victims I can pull in here first. (laughs) Wasn't too bad, though, was it? No, but I think I've shared a lot of the like parts of these stories previously. And I don't really have like a deep trauma that I have to overcome. I was actually super fortunate in my life that I was born old. I've done this all before and surprisingly secure. And actually, Knight and I were talking about daddy issues and that I should be like the poster child for daddy issues. And I was like, well, the difference is I had very strong women in my family. Six generations, only two boys and my son being one of them. And all the women got married, but they just like the guys might have given some financial security, but they weren't like really emotionally that involved it the women called all the shots and it was a family of great grandma has one daughter who has three daughters who has two daughters who has two daughters another one had two daughters and my sister has two daughters and yeah so it's just a lot of women and so any guy walking in is like oh and like backs <laughs> out so I saw oh look we can thrive and survive without guys like you can get your needs met and so that's why I think I don't run into that same thing where you go oh women need security and the man provides security, 
that wasn't provided by a specific man in my life. So I go, well, no, I can get it from lots of other sources. And I don't put one that weight on men to provide that for me. And I don't feel like that's missing out of my life because I cast my net so wide that I have an amazing support structure without it. So when I walk into those polarity chats and I'm like, (laughs) have you considered everyone can support everyone else? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I would just say I'm not going to dive into that right now. But in general, yes, security can come from multiple places. It Mm -hmm. does not have to come from men. Yeah, so but I, I think am that's... working on a book right now. Well, I'm working on the outline at the very beginning mm-hmm. stages of a book in regards to why women in general, I'll just say that in mm-hmm. general, seek security. I think the difference is that everyone seeks security. Oh, that's probably true. But I can only speak mm-hmm. from a woman's standpoint because obviously I am a woman. So I understand that perspective sure. very well. And one thing that I've even said in Discord is if we look to just romance novel genre, tells us so much because that's written to largely women. It tells us so much about a women's psyche and what it is that is our deep longing. I responded even on Discord that I was like, now imagine if that displayed healthy communication instead. And if children had that modeled from the beginning that they would think that that is what we should aspire to in life instead of being told this is what you should hope for and put the no no i'm not making a judgment on that either way yeah what more what i'm looking at it as is digging into the why Mm -hmm. why is that appealing what is behind that? Why do we see these very specific patterns, these very specific oops? Yes. Why do we see those over and over and over? And why do they appeal? Right? So it's not a judgment of should it, mm-hmm. what could be better? It's more of a what's behind that? And what could we learn from that? I would say a lot of it's social conditioning that we're told. One of the things that happened during my divorce And I was like, oh, well, no, even though I divorced him, he's still a good co-parent. And looking at like the guys that I date, then I look at my sister's ex-husband and my mom's ex-husband and these guys that are just awful. And my mom's like, well, you can't expect other men to go to those standards. I was like, we should. We should hold men to those standards. And the reason that my partners treat me so well is because I expect them to. I expect them to communicate with me. I expect them to engage at that level or they will not be with me. And so anybody who I bring into my life has to already be on that level with me. And if we all held everybody to that versus them accepting these men at their low level because that's just how men are. No, if all men are no longer accepted at that level and if women are not accepted at the level that they're walking in it, they would have to get better. And so in you mentioned introduce scarcity and how that is what it is. And all I've done is say, no, this is where the bar is. You either reach that bar or we're not going to continue. And so even my worst case scenario, my divorce ex-husband is still a wonderful person. It's just not somebody that I need to have tied to me. Yeah. Makes sense. We probably could build three or four I was podcast say. episodes out of <laughs> just that right there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
So whether it be Branch Davidians or oh, we love our cult. stripping or fetish stores and fetish stores divorces, <laughs> whatever it is that life may have thrown at you, thrive and survive and embrace your chaos. It'll all work out. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast channel. And if you love this, don't forget to leave a rating and review. To connect with us and ask questions, visit us at goodbadhorrible.com. 